morning, you should join me and turn it over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We finally arrived at chapter 3, but always with the reminder that the things we've talked about in the past are relevant to what we're talking about now. And this section is very much connected to what we looked at last week around the whole theme of submission. There it is, I said that word. I, I intended to, to not say it, but there's not a way to get around it. And so when I titled the sermon, I gave it a, a, a title that would hopefully make it sound more appealing and exciting in your eyes. The beauty, or the duty and the beauty of submission. We mentioned it a little bit last week. We're Americans and we don't like to submit to anything. We like to do what we want, when we want, where we want, how we want, because we're Americans. And this challenge to submit, not for any other reason than the Lord gave us the perfect example of submission and calls us to submit, is a difficult challenge. But it's a duty that the Lord calls us to, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, in the present context of the world we live in, this command falls in the section that we're looking at upon wives living in the home. This is the year 2018, and we've came a long way, baby, if you listen to some of the women's rights movement people, that women have risen to a status that has never been seen in history. And we're going to look in just a moment about how from the very early days in ancient times that women were treated at best at just a little bit better than the household servants in their homes. But we're going to see that in Christ that God has a plan and a purpose for them, seeing that there's no distinction in male or female, but all are are included in this household of faith. But yet God has distinct roles for the man, for the woman, And the word submission is a very important part of it. In these first seven verses, we see directions specifically to women in the first six verses and in verse seven directed toward men. And this morning we'll only cover the first six verses. I'd like to begin by reading those with you and then we'll pray together and we'll get started. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Great and mighty God, we are thankful for the day that you've given us here. And Lord, by the very fact that we are alive and breathing and we're present in this place, we trust that you have a word for us this morning. So God, I pray that you would open up our ears, open up our hearts, illuminate your word by your spirit and teach us what we need to know. 
Because God, you are worthy and we are needy. And help us to find all our needs met in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we could say that the beauty of submission attracts attention to Christ. And I hope after we've looked at these verses, that becomes evident to you. The beauty of submission attracts attention to Christ. And we'll look, and you don't have to write these down now. We're going to look at the duty of submission. We're going to look at how it affects our, our lives. We're going to look at also an example of Submission, And then we're going to look also at the beauty of submission. Don't fill those in because they're not even in the right order. But I'll give them to you as you go along. But first of all, the duty of submission. Now, if you remember from last week, we looked at that, the challenging role of a slave or a household servant in a household called to submit to their masters, even though they're treated unfairly and harshly. But God gives them the example, Peter writes about it, of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked humbly and quietly to the cross, was mistreated, was submitted to all kinds of of illegal activities, but yet God had a plan and a purpose for him to go to the cross for our redemption. And because of that, he's our Savior and he's also our example. And so it's a duty for us as Christians, as believers, to submit. And here he turns the focus toward wives. Wives who are in the homes of with a husband who may or may not be a believer, but are called to submit or to subject themselves to that leadership in the home. Now, wives in ancient days didn't have the same status as they do today. They were valued to some level, but they were by no means considered equal to men. And in almost all ancient cultures, without exception, husbands were the authority, women had few rights, they owned little or no property, And they enjoyed little freedom outside the home. So the luxury that you enjoy today of being able to hop in a car and go to the coffee shop or go to a grocery store was not something that ladies in ancient cultures enjoyed. And unfortunately, in some cultures still in the world, it's something that they don't enjoy. But the world that they lived in, this Greek and Roman culture, expected that wives would have no friends outside the home that basically if you had friends it would be the friends of your husband and you would have you would be friends with their wives there wasn't any going out and making your own friends and that they would follow and worship the gods of their husbands so whatever the husband did the wife followed along if they worshiped you know the roman gods you would worship those as well if they added one along the way you could add that along And this Roman world, this Greek world, there was so much value placed in order. Order in the home. That things would be done in an orderly manner. And if they had a well-ordered home, it would lead to a well-ordered state. And so the challenge that these ladies faced, these women were coming to know Jesus. How in the world were they supposed to act? They had found new freedom in Christ. They had found a Lord and they found a Savior. And they were living in a culture where Christianity was blamed for bringing public calamity. Because this idea of freedom was so contradictory to the culture they lived in. It was so against the status quo that much of what we would call biblical Christianity was seen as rebellious. Because it damaged that order, that social structure. It started to blur the lines a little bit. Now, as these women were starting to follow Christ, 
it was a great challenge because all of a sudden they weren't following the husband's gods. All of a sudden they were following another God and not just a God who said, you can worship me along with the other gods, but a God that said, you'll worship me and you'll worship me only. And that phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, began to be a phrase that would separate and distinctively identify a believer from any others. Because when people would say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were saying that I believe in the one true God and no other God. It's not God plus anything. It's not Jesus plus other gods. But it's God and God alone. And so they were already at odds with their husbands because of this religion. But then there's also the attraction of fellowshipping with other believers. That there was this desire to go and be a part of this assembly of the saints. And in this assembly, they would undoubtedly meet people that would be outside their husband's circle of influence and they would undoubtedly build relationships and make friends. And so there was this contradiction. There was this challenge. And in many of those homes, the husband would say to the wife, I don't want you going to church. I don't want you leaving the home. And so how in the world could these women in this time fulfill their responsibilities to Christ and honor their husband at the same time? Let's look at verse 1 together. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So the conduct, the duty that we're called to do, that wives are called, is to be subject to your own husband. He connects it with the word likewise, and you see that all through chapter 2 and chapter 3. Likewise, likewise, or in the same way, connecting this whole theme of submission throughout the scriptures and these chapters with the theme, when the main idea at the heart of it being that Jesus submitted humbly, and we should also. And so it's almost when he says likewise, like saying, well, here's the next point that I want to cover. And he says to be subject to or be submissive. That a wife is supposed to acknowledge the leadership role of her husband in the home, not in a way that would demean her, but in a way that would honor her and value her. That they would follow after the example of Christ. That it would not be about personal rights or personal privileges. But there would be a willingness to place yourself under the authority of another person. Placing your ultimate trust in God. And realizing that you're free to serve God and serve others. Now I need to say this about this word submission. It does not imply inferiority. Spiritually, morally, or intellectually. What we see in Scripture from the very beginning that God established the male as the leader. Man was created first. Woman was created as a helper. Though not lesser than man, she was created as a helper to man. Adam had a part in naming woman Eve. And when the problems start coming, when they take of the fruit of the tree, God goes looking for Adam, the head of the family. And not Eve, the one who initially caused trouble. And so we see gender roles are rooted in creation from the the very beginning. And when Peter and Paul write about this idea of submission, they would have never brought up anything that would have damaged marriage or would have gone against God's plan. And so when we say this word submission, it's a good thing. But it's not checking your brain at the door, ladies. 
It's not blindly following along and it's not refusing to raise legitimate questions when necessary. One commentator, David Helm, gives us a list of things that I think are important in regards to this that it does not mean. Submission does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should do so. Submission does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin, you should do so. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a different opinion. It does not mean that if he is unfaithful, you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must quietly remain in the home and accept the daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs. You see, submission honors God and shows mutual respect for man and woman. And I really like the way John Piper puts it. It's submission is the calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. That it's a lovely, beautiful partnership of the man and the woman as the helper to the glory of God. However, in the example we have here, we have the less than perfect circumstance. The wife is a believer. The husband may or may not be a believer or at least is not yet a believer. And the reason Peter calls them to submit is so that they, that even if some of these men that don't believe, they do not obey the word, they may be one. And that do not obey indicates men that had heard the truth, but had not believed the truth. That they had been exposed to the things of the gospel, but they weren't yet persuaded to make a response. And that response may, in some cases, have been on the low end indifference. You know, I don't care about what you do, just don't tell me about it. Or on the high end to flat out open hostility. And some of you know what that's like, whether it's a a spouse or whether it's a family member, that when you start living your life for Jesus, that there's this hostility about the things of God and the things of the church. But the hope in this is that these unbelieving, against the gospel husbands will become believing husbands. That they might be won over is what Peter says. They might be gained for for Christ. That they might be converted. They might be saved. And the strategy that we have, without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says it's about your conduct, not your words. It's about the pattern of your life. It's not about the preaching. Many of us have loved ones in our family and we've shared the truth with them. And maybe we've shared the truth with them on a number of occasions. And we could say without a doubt that they know. But they're probably or maybe in the point of their life where there's probably not much else you can say to them. They've heard about all they can say for you. And you're left to prayer and living out your faith in front of them. And so what Peter is saying here that you're not going to win them over by constantly nagging, by constantly placing the truth in front of them in, in harsh ways, by, by trying to, you know, to, to take advantage of every opportunity in the car to tell them about you know, why they need to convert. But he says, no, it's through the way that you live your life. 
And he implies that the husbands are watching. They're observing their actions and they're taking mental notes of the responses of the wife to their treatment. And it catches his eye and he takes careful notice. And then over time, it's something that God could use to change his heart. It's a reminder, and we've said it often, it's one of Peter's favorite words, and it's the word conduct. And our conduct matters. And he gives us two adjectives to describe that conduct. He says, for the wives, it's respectful and it's pure. Now, that word respectful literally means to be in fear, but not in fear of the consequences or of the husband, but to live in fear or respect of the Lord. And so it's the picture of a godly wife who lives in fear of the Lord. And because they fear God, they respect God, that they're able to submit to their husband. But they also live a life that's morally pure. That they may not be perfect, but overall the pattern of their life is that they're diligently working to abstain from sin. It's the calling of all believers. First Thessalonians 4, 7 says, God has not called us for impurity but in holiness and as one man said this pure is some is someone who refuses to use deception or dishonesty to get their own way that handles their anger in a godly way so the aim of this day-to-day conduct this observable difference that christ makes in your life is that if people could see the difference that jesus makes then God can use that as a tool to work in their lives, to soften their heart for the good news of the gospel. I was reading an illustration about a missionary um, from England who had returned home, and they had a servant in their home. And their desire was to have this servant trust and come to faith in Christ. And after a while, and you can imagine this this well-dressed, proper, tea-drinking British lady speaking to the servant and asking, you know, why you're not a Christian. And the response of this servant was, I will consider the Christ you have when I see that he has indeed made a difference in your life. And there are many around us that may consider the claims of Christ for the first time when they see in our lives the difference that he's made. But right now they may be indifferent because they see that the difference he's made in our life is really nominal at best. So to summarize this section, Peter gives advice to wives, submit to your husbands and their godly lives will speak to them, the Living Bible says, better than any words. Not that words are unimportant, but many times the quality and character of our lives will speak louder than our words. And that brings us to the second thing. It's not only a duty, but it's also something beautiful in the sight of God. The beauty of submission, verses 3 and 4. Now we can notice from Scripture that the general teaching of the Bible is that what matters is on the inside. It's, what, it's what's on the inside that really matters. And we can look at the story of, of Samuel going to choose a king. And after he's had this parade of all the, the fine-looking young men that that Jesse brings, he reminds him in relation to that, that that God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. God looks at the heart. The psalm writers remind us that God searches our heart and he knows our hearts. 
And so we come before God without pretense because we know that he's not impressed by the way we look or the way that we dress. What that really means is that even though somebody said, hey, you're wearing a jacket today, God doesn't care that I'm wearing a jacket. If I wear a suit or a tie, God doesn't care. He's not impressed by those external things. He's not impressed by how much money we have, doesn't, the price tag of our, of our clothes. He's not impressed by our appearance. He's impressed by our heart. And he's interested in a heart that's completely his. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose heart are fully committed to him. So when God gazes around the earth, he's looking for those to strengthen. He's looking for those to, to use and empower. And who is he looking for? Hearts that are fully committed to him. Hearts that are completely his. And in this passage, in these verses, we have a, a contrast between external and internal beauty. Human beings, we look at the outside we, want, we are attracted by things that are visible, that are noticeable, that are impressive to the eye. They readily stand out and they get our attention. But God is interested in the internal, things that we can't easily see. And that are altogether probably not real impressive to society in general. And he says in verse 3, don't let your adorning or the, the beauty treatments be external. The braiding of hair. The putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you're, you wear. Don't be overly concerned by matters of appearance. Now what he's not saying is, is this is not a prohibition. This is not saying, okay, ladies, you, you're not supposed to braid your hair. You're not supposed to wear jewelry. And, and you need to you know, wear you know, drab clothing. The implication is that you would dress in a way, that you would present yourself in a way that would honor God... And not draw attention to yourself. And the implication here, the underlying principle is that modest dress is implied. It's okay to dress nicely. It's okay to to fix your hair. It's okay to wear jewelry. But not in a way that would would draw undue attention to yourself. That would be an enticement or would be alluring. You see, because what's happening in Peter's day is these women are beginning to venture out of the home to attend worship. Some cases the husband would let them. And so they're leaving the home. And if they never left the home, there was no need for them ever to braid their hair, to wear their gold jewelry, or to put on their fancy clothes because they were at home and nobody would see them. We've all had days like that. You know, those days where you just stay in your your pajama clothes or your regular clothes because who's going to see you, right? You know, and you get up and your hair is sticking up all over your head and you just don't care because you're not leaving, right? But here, all of a sudden, they're leaving the house. Not only are they leaving, they're leaving without their husband. And they're going to be around a different set of people without their husband. And Peter wants to make sure that the intention that they have is to worship God and not impress others. Because like it or not, both men and women, if not careful, can become enslaved to fashion or appearance. And when we focus more attention on that, when it takes us longer in the morning in front of a mirror to get ready, then we spend preparing our hearts to be ready for the day, then that's a challenge. We need to make sure that the time we spend in front of the mirror that is God's word 
is at least equal, if not more, of the time we spend in front of the mirror to make sure that we are presentable for the day. But he gives us the contrast. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside. This hidden person of the heart, this spiritual qualities that are of greater value than physical value. The inner person, who you are on the inside, your soul, your very existence. And that's a beauty that never fades. It's a beauty that you'll never find on the cover of a magazine, you'll never see in the movies. But it's the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And in Proverbs 31.30, it gives us this contrast between the two. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If anybody had time, they could probably teach a pig enough charm to be a blessing to people. So charm is deceitful. Anybody can learn to be charming. Beauty is vain, meaning that it fades. It's not always lasting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, to be continually praised. So not overly impressed with self, gentle, humble, and meek, and and not silent, not, not quiet. It doesn't mean that a wife can never speak, but they, they have a well-ordered personality and they, they're poised and they're tactful. It doesn't mean that they're silent, but it does mean that they're weak. I was reading about Martin Luther this week and Martin Luther's um, wife, um, who was very supportive but also very bold in her, um, her testimony. Martin Luther said of his wife, if God had intended women to be meek, and he's speaking about his own wife, He would have made them out of stone. So you are unique creations. You have been given a voice. You have been given a mind to think. You've been given a heart to love. And God doesn't expect you to check those things at the door. But what is beautiful and precious in God's sight is a woman who is devoted to the Lord, who's confident that God will protect and God that will provide, and that lives alongside their husband to build a Christian home. Now just think about this for a second. What does God put a higher price tag on? Clothes, jewelry, and outward appearance or trusting faith? It's trusting faith, isn't it? And so Peter moves ahead to give them an example of women who clothe themselves with a beauty that came not from the outside, but a beauty that came from within. And so the last thing we look at is the example of submission. And he raises up these holy women of the past. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Holy, not perfect, but set apart for God. They put their hope in God. And who became these beautiful examples of submission? Now we look at them examples we have in the Bible, whether they're male or female, and we realize very quickly that they're not always perfect. They do have their moments of weakness. That some of them misuse their position and their influence for their own devices. But in general, we could say that the examples of godly women we have in the Bible are are good examples. That they would be role models that we could pattern lives after. And he raises up one above the other to give us a specific example. And he raises up Sarah. 
makes her the prime example. Sarah, who in the Jewish mind would have been the first lady of God's covenant, the wife to Abraham, the one who was promised to be made into a great nation, the one who was an old man, who was married to an old woman. They didn't have any children. They had no hopes of having any children. But God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now we know from what we read in Scripture that this that Sarah was beautiful, beautiful enough that even in old age drew the attraction of kings to be wives and at the urging of Abraham was posing to be his sister and not his wife. But she's not a pushover. She shows respect for Abraham and essentially he did, she did what he asked her to do even when he came up with some pretty harebrained schemes. Verse 6 says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now some of you are probably going, wait, wait, wait a minute. Obeyed, calling him Lord. Is Peter saying that we should address wives should submit their husbands as Lord or as Master or Sir? Well, that's not exactly what he's saying Because to call him Lord would be the equal in our day to call someone Mr. or Sir. It's a term of honor. But we have to understand the context, which is in Genesis 18, and it's an indirect address, not a direct address. It's not the wife waking up in the morning and turning to her husband and saying, Good morning, Master. What can I do for you? It's not coming home at the end of the day and saying, Well, Sir, how may I serve you? But it's... It's a term of respect given to him. Genesis 18, I reminded you earlier, Abraham and Sarah, they're old, they're past the point of childbearing, but they're holding on to this promise God made. And Sarah receives word from these visitors that she is going to have a son. And we pick it up in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And so in this chapter, she refers to Abraham as as Lord, but it's not direct, it's indirect. And she actually says the, the word again in the verses. But it's a term of respect. But you see this attitude of, of almost disbelief in that she laughs because she's like, okay, I'm old. I'm almost 90. And you're saying that I'm going to have a child. And the Lord's response the faithfulness in this is anything too hard for the Lord and how the Lord in his goodness and his mercy replaced that laughter of yeah we'll see about this with the joyful laughter of a child within a year is a blessing it's a testimony to God's faithfulness and so Peter is showing us the example of Sarah and he's saying to Christian wives and also to all Christians that I'm faithful. You can trust me. You can trust me. 
And he says that if you display that trust and you live in submission, ladies, you can be a daughter of Sarah. Verse 6, the second part. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. That a woman, a wife that chooses to follow after Jesus, he tells us earlier in the book that they're born again to a living hope. So you're going from hopeless to hope-filled And he says, if you walk in this example of Sarah, this example of trusting faith and submission, that you're worthy to be called her daughters, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. So how do you, as a lady, walk in this example? Well, in a word, it's faith. Trusting, believing faith. Hebrews 11, verse 11, in that roll call of faith, the writer reminds us by faith, Sarah herself Receive power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. If you don't have that verse underlined in your Bible, I would encourage you to do so. Because that last phrase, she considered him faithful who had promised, is so very important. Because God is faithful to all of his promises even though we don't see the immediate result, and even though in the world that we live in, in the place that we are, we see no evidence from it. God is faithful to His promises. And a godly wife considers God faithful to all of His promises. And in that faith, they continue to do good. They continue to respond in a respectful way. It may not seem to make sense. It may not be pleasant, but they do the right thing, trusting, that God, trusting in God that there are good things to come. And they walk in faith, not in fear. The last part of that verse, do not fear anything that is frightening. If you just glance at that, it doesn't seem to, to make sense. Do not fear anything that is frightening. But if you think back to what Peter has told us in chapter 2, he tells us to, to fear God only and to honor the king. That when we have a respect for God, then there's nothing in this world that we should fear. And we could truly say that we could not fear anything that is frightening because we have a respect for one who the word says his perfect love Cast out all fear. Now in this context, it may be implying, as the New Living Translation says, that you can live without fear of what your husbands might do. You may be able to live, you can live without fear of the implications of doing the right thing. The Amplified gives us a little more. It says, not giving way to hysterical fears or letting anxieties unnerve you. And many times that's what fear does. It brings about hysteria or anxiety that indeed does unnerve us. It unravels us at our seams. But the hope for Sarah with her husband Abraham, the hope for Esther as she was obedient to the Lord and went before the king, the obedience of Ruth as she went out gleaning one day hoping to find favor. And the other ladies of faith through the pages of Scripture, through the remembrances of our mind, whether we've had them in our families, whether we've sat with them in church services, just trust in God. 
They trusted God. They feared Him only, and they put their hope in the fact that God's promises are all true. They had faith. We're almost finished. I do want to read you a quote from from Jen Wilkins. She's from the Metroplex, and she's a a writer of ladies' Bible studies. And I think she captures this um, from the from the perspective of a lady in a really beautiful way. For wives, submission is an act of faith. Faith that God is working to accomplish what is best for her. Admittedly, more faith is required of some wives than others in this matter. But the principle remains that God never asks of us something that is for our spiritual harm. God never asks of us something that is for our spiritual harm. See, the beauty of submission attracts attention, not to ourselves, but to our Lord, to Christ. And Christianity that's genuinely lived out in the presence of unbelievers can be an instrument that God uses to bring someone to faith in Christ. Even someone that you've lived with for a long time, you've prayed for for a long time, and to this day you don't see any evidence. God is able. Now this passage is aimed directly at women, but it's applicable to all Christians. It's aimed at those that are married, but it's very much applicable to those that are not married and those that are men. And so I just have two questions before we pray. What are you focused on? What are you more focused on? Is it the external? Is it what people think about you? Is it appearance? Is it possessions? Or is it the internal? What God thinks about you? Things that are spiritual and things that are lasting and eternal. For really honest, what motivates us? What God thinks or what other people think? It's a challenging question. I think God can use that to probe us and to refine us. And then the second question. Are there people in your life right now that you would like to see come to know Christ? I think that everybody has those folks. People that we know in our lives, whether they're a friend or their family, we'd like to see them come to Christ. And maybe you felt like you've said all you can say. And maybe you have. I encourage you to keep praying. Keep living your life for Jesus. Let that beauty come from the inside to the out. And then continue to put your hope in God. To pray and live and not give up for the glory of the Lord. And to trust God to do the work that really ultimately only He can do. And that by His goodness He allows us to play a part in. The beauty of submission attracts attention to Christ. Will you pray? Father in heaven, we are grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to listen with our hearts to the things you speak to us. And God, we are thankful that even though topics are are challenging, they're easily misunderstood or 
not popular in the culture that we live in. That you give us clear direction. And as we bow ourselves under the authority of your word, we ask you to transform our hearts and our minds to form us into the image of the one who is our Lord and our Savior. And Lord, if there are hearts here that have never turned toward you, that they've never surrendered their life to you to be Lord and Savior, that today is the day of salvation. It's simple trusting faith. It's calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. It's admitting that we can't do anything of ourselves to save ourselves, but all we can do is run to you and trust in you. Lord, thank you for meeting us here this morning. And I pray that far beyond the words that that we've spoken, that your spirit is working in a deeper way to transform us. Thank you, O Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.